Thank you for downloading the IA podcast. The episode you're about to listen to was originally featured as a video on the IA's YouTube channel, IA London. But we've taken the audio and we've turned it into a podcast so that you can listen on the go. Enjoy. Good evening, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are. Hope you are. I'm Chris Snowden. This is the Swift Half with Snowden. Um, we're back again, as we are, 5 p.m. Thursday, every fortnight. And this week, delighted to say that I am joined by the comedian, Jeff Norcott. Jeff, how are you doing? Comedian, author, yes, I author now, mate. As, as unlikely as it seems when you speak to me, author. Author, true. He has got a book out, came out last year, I think. Um, I did, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny, but even the way I say author, I mean, that's probably sort of precludes me from from the guild, I'd imagine. It's a very good book, I have to say. Genuinely, I was looking for it before, actually. I think I must have lent it to somebody because I can't find it anywhere around the house. It's called Where Did I Go Right? And do you want to to describe it, Jeff? Well, it's just a story of, because, of course, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I do like a title that sort of says, you know, a bit of a Ron Seal title. But but it was the thing that I got asked most often was like, you know, you're with your background, basically you should vote Labour. And for, for a while, I haven't been voting Labour. So it was a kind of way into doing a memoir was like, all right, this thing that a lot of people seem to think I should be doing, what, why am I not doing it? And it enabled me to uh, tell some stories along the way. But yeah, that's been out, been out since last May. It's done well. And now now I'm on tour doing the 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 oral version of it which sounds like way more uh sort of benefits but it's not i mean i'm just it's comedy so you say the oral version of it so it's kind of based on the on the book you're going back no i don't know why i said i don't know why i said that it's not the oral version of it what i mean what i mean is i'm on tour and suddenly remember that all right you're doing stand-up but but there are some stories from the book that make their way into the show yeah yeah there's some very funny stories in the book i have to say uh, and also some quite sad ones. I mean, it's uh, it's mm. quite a life you've had. Because I know, obviously, one of your things is I'm a working class comedian, which, you know, these days is in itself, you know, a talking point, which is a bit worrying. Um, but when you said working class, I thought you were just kind of distinguishing yourself from the public schoolboys who seem to dominate a lot of the arts these days. Mm. But in actual fact, you had quite a tough upbringing. Well, there was a uh, period where it, it was particularly tough. Like, the family's traje- trajectory was quite middle class you know we're on a curve towards that and then when my parents got divorced and my dad got made redundant um, my mum went with a slightly unusual decision of leaving him with the house because in the 80s it was all taken for the house taken for the house but she was like how about leaving with the house which is a very novel strategy and uh, and then we ended up in a, in a council estate in Wimbledon which in itself you know if you look at comedians there's there's weird little paradoxes that tend to set us on our path so so and then yeah we there was periods where we did get re- were really quite poor I mean not, not poor like there were people around me that we wouldn't have food and, and basics we never were in, in that position but it was tense mm. and um, there was there, it was interesting I was reading a book recently by um, Douglas Stewart called Shuggy Bane which is an excellent book and there was a a bit in it where he tries to illustrate the breadline by the fact that uh, working class people used to have televisions on higher purchase, that there was a thing on the top of the telly you had to put pound coins in to keep going. And obviously the guy would come every few weeks and keep those pound coins. And and I suddenly thought, we had one of those. Like I was laughing at it going, God, boy, it's tough there. I was going, well, no, I remember that. I remember watching Countdown, like on a countdown, essentially. So 
Yeah, they, they, it, it was not, I don't think like in the grand map of the Norcott family life that it was actually supposed to go that way, but there was certainly a bit where it was where it was tight. And then you went on to become a teacher for a while, English teacher. Yes. And, yeah. And then took the, the path to stand-up comedy, which seems to be quite a common path. Seems like there's a lot of frustrated stand-up comedians as, as teachers. What's the connection there? Just standing up in front of people talking? Or... Well, I see, I always, I always think that there's a rational answer to these things. I think the main thing is there's 600,000 teachers in Britain, um, apparently, right? Whether some are active or inactive. So I think it's as much a numbers game as anything. Like, I do think that there is some sort of Venn diagram between the the process of standing up in front of a group of people trying to win their trust with ideas and communicate. But equally, there's just a lot of teachers. So you get quite a lot of stand-ups who used to be doctors as well, because there are uh, a lot of doctors. But but the, I would say it's, it's probably a bit more than just the, the statistical uh, relationship. But I would probably say that teaching was the first time that I realised that I was a bit conservative, to be honest. There was something about the environment where I just thought, well, I'm not like them, you know, them being other teachers. All right. Were you a bit more of a disciplinarian than the other teachers? Yeah. Yeah, I was very strict. I mean, I'm not like that as a person, you know, in person. But you, the moment you put me in front of, like, young kids, I was like, I was like, I just instinctively thought that's what they need me to be. They don't need a mm. mate. You know, they need a, a sort of male role model and someone they can depend on and trust and feel safe. I, became, I don't know if you've watched the show Parks and Recreation, but I came a yeah. bit like Ron. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, kind of like, well, you need son is you need woodwork skills and you know i just thought there were so many of these boys there and a lot of them you know didn't have dads around and stuff and i thought oh, they just they just need really basic things i mean that is sort of and it informed a lot for me because you get a, a certain amount of platitudes on the left which are about teenagers are amazing let them let them vote let them i mean i was at one school where they let teenagers sit in on an interview panel for a new appointment which i just thought was ridiculous but but i thought no it, it, it wasn't that long ago that they were really little kids and it, you can it can fool you because they can be quite tall or they could have developed and gone through puberty and stuff but you go no they still are not far from that creature that needed managing in almost every situation so i kind of responded to that and that was probably you know when i talk about where did i go right that that was probably the start of the drift so do you, do you have a view on educational policy are you a fan of the michaela school and that kind of more well i mean i don't way of running play, things all i can say is that when i and the most informative bit of teaching that i did was when i did supply while i was doing stand-up so you get to see loads of different schools and loads of different systems and um the the, the, the best schools for working class kids were the strict ones, you know, so it's a real, it's a real privilege to sit there and go, oh, well, what, you know, why do we still have uniforms in 2022 or, you know, ask these questions, go, look, hands down, the rougher the area, the stricter the school should be, I, I would say, because the school needs to be like a, a, a sanctuary um for those kids you know i did one of my teacher training placements in brixton and everyone always says oh dear you know i bet that was a bit rough but um the school was really strict and the kids were the kids loved it there because it was a uh, you know it was, it was it was quite a safe you know i mean like in the real meaning of the word a safe space um for for them so so yeah it, it did make me realize that oh yeah you know some of the old stuff that people say um it's true the things that I always thought were cliches or conservative platitudes, you go, oh, this stuff is, this stuff's there for a reason. Well, that's the essence of conservatism, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, that. it sticks around. <laughs> um, are you still on that diversity panel or whatever it was? I remember you got. Well, I, I don't believe that it's been formally wrapped up, but um, what's it called? Honest, 
the diversity and inclusion panel. So for it who? started the in. Uh, no, no, for the BBC. BBC. So it yeah. started in. Um, I think yeah, they they basically got to a point where they was like, oh, we need we need a, we need a bloke that looks like he'd nowhere to order a skip. We need one, uh, you know, we need one of those guys. And it was it was a class thing initially, and it was interesting to sit there and stuff. But I, I don't know because kind of COVID um, interfered with. We met a couple of times virtually, but. Um, well, you know, it's one of the, I, haven't, I haven't been fired yet. I mean, it was, but by the way, it was never a paid job and it was never a regular thing. We just we just met and sat and chatted for a while every three to six months. So it was strange the way it was announced. It made it sound like I'd landed myself like a czar sort of. Right, role. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I had no idea. I, I just thought I was going to give a little talk at a thing. I was Because they asked me, will you come down on that day? I was like, yeah, I'm in town. I'll double up and... You know, good for the old networking, and then suddenly I was in, I was in way I was I was I was like lead lead story in the Guardian that day and the Telegraph, and you know it was it was quite a thing. And who who you don't have to name names, but who else is on the panel? Is everybody on the panel? Well, I think it's because of some sort of identitarian characteristic. And what do you chat about? Uh, so we, I think, like, well, it's in the public domain. I think that there's a guy called Tom Iloop who who was originally convened it. Uh, June Sarpong is there i think tanny gray thompson is there and you know like it, it, the thing is my with my politics i instinctively am, am, am uneasy with with some of that stuff you know it, i have to really think about it but on the other hand I, what i become aware of in certainly the television industry is is it's going to happen right that those kind of discussions and and diversity initiatives and it's not that i don't i, I think the bbc should represent the country as it breaks down you know i don't think that's unreasonable it shouldn't be too strict you know people should have creative freedoms but broadly what we see on screen should roughly reflect what we are as a society but the truth is if there was you know if there was it, everyone is he wants a piece right everyone's um arguing for their own sort of identity and if there wasn't someone there doing it on a class basis it would it might get overlooked so you know if it's not me it's got to be someone it's going to so, happen. That process is going to happen. Yeah, and I know they've got quotas for various things. They haven't got quotas for working class people. I know that they've got LGBTQ plus whatever uh, mm. quotas. They've got quotas for BMAE, um, quotas for women. What I object to, and I do basically agree with you that it should reflect the nation, and I would hope mm. that that would happen fairly organically, really. But if they, if they feel they're so sexist and racist that they can't do that organically, maybe they need a, a Well, it's funny, isn't it? Because you're essentially but, saying the TV industry, this incredible liberal metropolitan yeah. thing, have basically had about 20 or 30 years to get it right and, and, and haven't. I mean, that's the, that's the irony, is if you look at, like, adverts, adverts now, you know, they've sort of gone into a mode of overcorrection. You think, well, the people casting those adverts for the last 30 years, when they didn't have anywhere near enough black or brown people in them were the same kind of people that would never have thought of themselves as prejudice you know it, it's sort of their mess in a way and then they've kind of visited that on other people they've almost made that well this is because of uh, toxic atmosphere in society you go no you always had the capacity to to make it more representative it just it took various public events for you to sort of creak into life yeah that's i mean the interesting point with the adverts is you know you generally got maybe two or three people in an advert and I mean, the classic one is is the people in the pub, right? So you can't have two blokes in the pub because they might be gay. You yeah. can't have four because they might be a, a, a rabble of hooligans. Yeah. So you have three, and you're going to have one of them is, is going to be black. And so, like yeah. in aggregate, there's an overrepresentation of, of black and ethnic yeah. minorities in adverts because one in three of them or one in two of them is always black. But like at the individual level of the company, it makes total sense because you want to appeal to your black customers as well, right? Yeah, yeah. And if he, and, and but the thing is, if every advertiser is is doing that. 
that's where one thing I do think is unusual actually, Chris, is, is if this is going on like we, we, we need to represent by numbers. I think that the 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 lack of representation of British Asians is peculiar in that respect mm. because numerically they're a much bigger group in, in society. And, and yet, and you know, I do wonder about advertisers' motives, you know, like whether they do things that, that suit them as well, if you know what I mean. But they, they just, that just doesn't seem to be a thing. And it's the same in TV roles and in drama for some reason. And I do think if I had a prediction to make is there will be a reckoning on, on, on that front because yeah. when people think of, you know, even when people say BAME, I, I don't think that they often think of the A. You know, well, it used I mean, to just be BME, if you remember, it used to be yeah. BME. And then somebody pointed out that Asians, there's far more Asians in this country than there are black people. Indians, yeah, I think, I are the biggest ethnic minority in the country. But as you say, they, they tend to get overlooked. But my point about the quotas, if I can just go back mm. to that a second, it's not that I, I do sort of object to quotas, really. But I suppose there are circumstances in which you might think they're necessary as a kind of one off shove up the lad, you know. Mm. But with the BBC, I can't remember the exact percentages. So, you know, shoot me. But all the percentages are like above the proportion in the population. So the, I think it's like 8% LGBT. Well, there's only about two, I mean, you can debate about it, but there's about one or 2% of the population are LGBT, right? So they're mm. massively overrepresented if you if they hit their target. The target for black and minority ethnic, I think is about 15%, which again is way above um, the, the I think I think it's actually I think the real figure is about fifteen percent. I think the target is twenty percent actually. I twenty, think. right? Okay, yeah. I think it went yeah, to twenty yeah. during the Black Lives Matter protest. Yeah, I, I mean, the only thing is, is that we're still waiting for the results of the latest census, are we? Which we, we which was done last year. So it could be that when that comes out, those figures won't be as far away as they seem. But, but certainly based on what we last knew factually, yeah, they, they and, are. I mean, they're, they're probably bang rules. on for London. They're probably, there's probably more than that in London of working yeah, yeah. age, but they're supposed to be representing the whole country. you know. And even with women, they go, well, we want 50% women in the border. And you can say, well, that's fair enough. 50% of the women, are, 50% of the population of women. But actually it's way less than that in terms of people who work full time. Work, yeah, well, working yeah, full time, yeah. it's about 40%. So if you meet all these targets, you almost by definition you have to discriminate against white uh male heterosexuals well yeah and those, numbers are yeah? i know and I, I think that my role is you know if you try and you know at the moment pitch that idea in a metropolitan setting they might go hmm but i imagine that mostly what they'd be thinking is well you know they had a good run at it and you know they being a kind of homogenous mass but what they can't ignore is that if you're talking if diversity you know, and inclusion is about disadvantaged people, then you have to include, you know, people who are economically disadvantaged, right? So you can think, well, you know, middle-class white males have had enough opportunities. You know, that is a bit kind of uh, simplistic in itself, but all right, fair enough. But what you what you can't do is say, well, you know, in diversity, there's a, there's a place for diversity by age, you, uh, sorry, by, by race, uh, by gender, by sexuality, but you go, all right, so where does a poor white, white working class lad fit in that? He falls between the cracks of all of that. So that, in a way, was kind of my objective, was knowing that this process was going to happen, but also saying, you know, we ha you have to include these people because include these people is one of those things that sounds so out of context. You have to include these bloody people, you know. But, um, but, but the big fear, obviously, in liberal circles is, is that white working class males will will you know, go off and join the far right. But 
you know, also there are things happening or, or that could happen where they get overlooked or marginalized, or there's a sort of contempt towards them that make that more likely. And that's what, that's one thing that is not just the BBC, but in sort of the, the world of culture generally, I've never understood that their big fear, you know, the most thing that they wring their hands about most often is, is the, all these lads marching off to join the modern equivalent of the BNP. And yet, you know, the view that they hold of a lot of those lads, you know, essentially is, is the most likely thing that's going to make that happen. Have they got a target for leave voters at the BBC? Yeah, try and make no, that 52%. No, no, I don't think. I mean, to be honest, I, I think that I, I wouldn't, I think that that was a point in time where they had to, it was probably the most instructive thing in terms of making them realise how far their radar was off, right? Because I was talking about my politics as a Conservative voter from 2013, but no one really gave a toss, essentially, you know, and I wasn't that good at it, you know, but I was kind of sticking with it because I thought it was funny. I just thought it was an interesting challenge. And then, um, and then, and then Brexit happened and then something changed, like significantly changed because they were like, oh, hang on. You know, we kind of knew that there were shy Tories, but this is, this is fundamentally different. But I, I, I personally think that, that leave and remain for most people were temporary identities largely i think that you know you still get people that are very much in the the trenches <laughs> fighting it out but i think for most I'm people they, yeah they've kind of they've kind of moved on so i think that it's good to be conscious of you know i think being socially conservative or you know what would now be called socially conservative is something that they um could do with being mindful of but that that's a, to me that to me is a hard p political identity that perhaps won't make as much sense over time now you're on tour at the moment as we've said tour till end of may yeah. um and you do a podcast as well which i've been on and i listen to uh, yes come time, time yeah. very enjoyable i mean you you put out a lot of content uh, really don't you and i know you when you when mm. you're on tour i came, came to see you in hove uh, on your last tour pre-covid mm. Um, and you, like most comedians, you like to get a bit of topical stuff up early on. Yeah. How are you finding that at the moment? Because like the only news story is the Ukraine. And I don't know if you do jokes about the Ukraine, but it's not an obvious. Um, uh, I do a, a few bits about Putin. Um, one of the things that about COVID is that it is such a big thing that we've all been through. And, and comedy often relies on shared experience, certainly observational comedy. So like, you know, it's quite rare that, that, you know, most people had their vaccinations, like 90% had a first shot. So you're looking at an adult audience where you can presume that nine out of 10 people did a thing, right? So, you know, when McIntyre sort of says, oh, we all do this, you know, like he, he will often go for the most common experiences. But with that, you can talk about something that had a quasi sort of political dimension to it. So it's a, it's a good subject. I mean, the only thing is, as we become freer, how much purchase those subjects have. I've actually started doing... Uh, my section on COVID and the setup for it is that I know that I know that we'll be fully clear of it when Peter Kay does a nostalgia routine about it. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of going, hey, remember, remember all, who remembers the old tier system, eh? Remember that? Eh? You know, that, that I, yeah, what was all that? The NHS up, NHS, remember that? We was all checking in, check. So I used that to get into it because the truth is, that's really good jokes on it. And, and I kind of thought, well, what's a conceit that would allow me to, and then it, and then it broadens out into what we learned about ourselves you know so this is these are this is not sort of strictly topical you know these are sort of learnings you know and and uh, to be honest I mean in terms of doing a talk there's so much to talk about it's, it's my best show by by a long way and and it sounds self-deprecating but if anyone had any inclination to come and see me is do come see this one because I can promise you the next one won't be as good I've just been in comedy long enough 
to know that I've got this set of this gear, this show, and, and I, I really love doing it. I really love doing every routine. And there are some shows, like even the one you came to see, like there's routines where they're there and you go, yeah, some nights you sort of feel reluctant to do them. But there's some nights with this show where I'm like, oh, I can't wait to do this. But if they like that, they're going to love yeah. this. And, and, and that's just because we, it's been such a, 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 it's been such a strange time. We've all gone through something together. And also the appetite for shared experience and laughter is, is higher than I've ever known it. I was speaking to Ramesh Ranganathan about it. Sounds like a massive name drop, but I, I was speaking to him about it last night. And just the audiences, are, I've never known anything like it. And, and it's not that they necessarily want, like all this thing about, do you want offensive comedy or right-wing comedy? I think what they want is honesty and bravery. And if you're willing to, you know, go on a limb and, and, and be as truthful as you can, and it's funny, the returns have never been higher. That's interesting that the, the, the crowds are more up for it than ever. Is that partly because yeah, some yeah. of the miserable people are still staying at home, lurking in, and well, yeah, yeah, it's probably what, yeah, it's like a sort of natural selection, isn't it? You know, the, 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 uh, the, I mean, like obviously the people that are shielded have got a shield, but then there's also, I guess, the timid people. <laughs> yeah, so I didn't mean the, the people who are actually clinically vulnerable. I mean, the people, yeah, that yeah, that's fucking yeah, pussies. Get yourself out. <laughs> I mean, no, but but I do believe, you know, one of the strangest things I found out about all this, and you've seen it in the press recently, you know, it's something about the way that they tweet COVID's not over. That I'm like, you're savoring the idea that it's not. Yeah, I mean, I, I think to all intents and purposes, it is, but they miss it. And I just think, God, you just please talk to someone. If, if you thought, if you're hankering for that, that time and all the collateral damage that came with it. I totally get it. If you're an anxious person, and you like sitting in the garden, getting paid by the government and all that stuff. Yeah. But overall, come on, you must realize that it was not a good time for humanity. But yeah, but, but the, there was a YouGov poll found that 16% of people felt their lives had got better during lockdown. So not a yeah. tiny minority, you know, some people, some people did, genuinely did, did enjoy it, but also some people really found their identity in it, you know, and you mentioned the, the FBP mm. type people before the ultra mm. remainers, they haven't gone away. I blocked about 50 of them just today because there's some mm. weird meme going around Twitter that Carol Cadwaller was right. And it's like the, the kind of gaslighting us. Nothing's happened. Nothing's changed at all, but apparently she's right. And Andrew Neil needs to apologize to it. And I've mm. had endless FBP people all over me been blocking them all they're still as lively as ever but i think it's the same well, on both sides actually of the with the covid divide with the you know the mm. smiley types and, and so on who've now seemed yeah, to yeah. pivot it to like ukraine war is a false flag seems to be their thing now well it's i think all, what, I mean, what people really got used to stuff. yeah i think people got used to is having a single issue where they go this is my thing this is what yeah. i do it you know and it's just a game to them and and they and they and they used to getting lots of likes. I mean, literally, some people just just say the same opinion. They don't even reword the tweet particularly. They just get up, I'll tweet that thing, like, you know, free speech is an absolute, and then bang, I'll have a coffee and wait for the likes to rack up. And I just, I find that odd as a creative person. I think it's just kind of, <laughs> it's defunct, it's redundant. But but they're, 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 they're just looking for a, a new grift. And when, you know, someone like yourself, where you find that you surprise yourself by where you fall, or, or if you're just trying to stay on the side of reason. I mean, I've certainly become a lot more conciliatory these days. I know that at this point in time, you know, it'd probably suit me professionally to keep leaning, you know, into the Tory thing. But if, if I have less faith in the Conservative government, I'm going to say it, right? You know, I'm not going to, because I can't be a person that is just sort of thinking, oh, I should be saying this about this subject. What do you think of the Conservative government at the moment? 
Partygate's nearly been forgotten about, but I suppose it will return. What did you make of that? What do you think Boris should do? Um, well, I think that what it comes down to, I think that after he won in 2019, they had this radical agenda, him and Cummings, and they put a lot of very weak politicians in, in, in important positions. You know, they didn't have a lot of experience and stuff like that. And then when COVID hit, there was a lack of competence visibly quite often in front of the camera. You know, journalists didn't, didn't help by the way that they acted, but ultimately they just, there was, I mean, Richie sort of acquitted himself well. It was good to see Sajid come back in, but they weren't being very conservative. You know, sometimes in some cases that was how they had to be, uh, but they, they held support, right? And I think that on balance, most people could see, and certainly when you look at the global stats now, that our experience of COVID was roughly in line with what it should be for a country of our size. I mean, yeah. everyone kind of knew that, but everyone's trying to write school reports before the end of term, weren't they? You know, we every time it was the highest death toll or the highest that week, you know, you had Piers Morgan or James O'Brien or people like that yeah. sort of gleefully hopping on it. And then, you know, after two years, you look at that map of excess deaths and you go, well, it's all gone quiet over there. But um, I think that when Partygate hit, I do think that the support that has been lost there, I think a lot of that support will be gone now. Like, for, not not all of it. Some of them, yeah, uh, some yeah. I think I think that people don't like being made to feel stupid, and the extent to which Partygate got dragged out for them, uh, I think that there were the floating voters that there was always a risk that they would feel like that. I personally, it's just a simple thing for me. If, 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 if Boris Johnson's lied in Parliament and that can be demonstrably proved, then you've got to go. Like, there's got to be a straight red. There has, to, there has to be some line in democracy where, you know, it's, it's down the tunnel. I just I just think that for, for decency's sake, you know, he says stuff, you know, with the Savile accusation and some of the things that, you know, I don't like it. I think it's grubby. But in terms of just sheer protocols, if he's proved to lie, he, he's got to go. But it's kind of funny that the moment Ukraine kicked off, that Rishi slunk back into the curtains. Didn't he? he sort of basically put his face mask on. You know that that, that meme of Homer Simpson where he, he sort of goes back into the. Edge, yeah. I mean, he did that. I mean, he, he didn't fancy a bit of it. And 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 what you can see is the approval ratings go up and down very quickly. They're they're much more fluid. You know, Boris's approval rating has recovered quite significantly. But if you look at Westminster voting intentions, um, they they've narrowed. But the movement is a lot is a lot slower, mm. and you know you still got the Sue Gray report to come out and stuff, and and there's still this this damage that you know by association with Russians that you know you see how much that hits them. I do think it is weird the way that you know we the idea. I think it's certainly plausible that the Conservatives took more money from Russian donors than they should have, but I also think that those Russian donors, if they are Kremlin operators, have got shit value for money because right, they're yeah. essentially. They sort of essentially been ripped off by the Tories because you go, well, we trained 20, 10% of the Ukraine military since 2014. You know, uh, we were sort of leading the way on certain banking sanctions and stuff. And yeah, we were sort of slow. If you look at it as a competition with Europe as to getting who can get the most refugees in, we were certainly slow out of the blocks there. But but I do think that, that social media in particular has now gone back to a kind of Tory derangement state where mm -hmm. during Partygate, they quite enjoyed the fact that everyone seemed to think the same thing and they, they got a lot of new friends and stuff. Whereas I think this is another period where the British public might be shifting a bit again. But I do think some of those Tory voters that were lost through Partygate will be lost for a long time. Yeah, um, I think you're probably right there. I was surprised how much your polls did change during that I mean, it annoyed me as well, the party gate thing, but I don't think it would fundamentally 
make me vote for a party which had completely different policies and values. You know well, I mean, so I don't quite that, that's the funny thing, isn't it? Because the Tories benefit from being like the only game in town right of centre. So, so it's it's a big leap. People are, do. I think people online often seem to think like. So if you say, for example, I'm not fed up with the Tories, or I'm not going to vote for them again while Boris is still leader, which I said at one point, and then they're like, "Welcome back to Labour." I'm like, "God, you don't understand. Like, is this is." This is a this is a totally different. Me not voting for the Tories, I would not vote for any of the other two main parties at this point. You know, you do the idea that three years down from the line from the Liberal Democrats just just shitting on a Democratic vote openly, you know, and from 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 Labour sort of um, kind of conspiring and sort of backsliding, essentially doing the same thing in the end. These are big things. If you think about how long uh, tuition fees affected Nick Clegg for and the Lib Dems. So the idea that the the attempts to frustrate a democratic vote, you sort of just sort of wriggle three of those within three years. No, not not for me. Yeah, I always felt a bit sorry for Nick, Nick Clegg for that. I have to say because he did come third excessive. in that election. He wasn't really in charge. He can make you know. He said he didn't want to bring in tuition fees. I'm sure yeah. if he'd been in charge, he wouldn't have brought him in. But he was a deputy prime minister. He had like fifty nine MPs or whatever. He couldn't get his way on everything. Could yeah, he? yeah, yeah. No, there's a lot of people that simply didn't understand what the concept of a coalition, you know, or being junior partners in a coalition. I felt, I felt for the Lib Dems. I thought they did the right thing in the moment, and I think they were quite sober coalition partners. It was quite a stable period of government. If you think back now, I mean, it's sort of remembered as chaotic because of, because of Cameron leaving and Brexit. But, but like, in terms of just government management, I, I missed that. Like, that was the tight ship under Cameron. That, we didn't have any scandals, almost nothing. For, for the whole five years of the coalition. In fact, in fact the only scandals came out of Lib Dems. Um, so, yeah, that, that period, I always thought that for someone like me, who's, you know, economically right-wing, right not extremely, but economically, you know, like, you know, sound money and fiscal prudence, but socially liberal, that was always a sweet deal to me, Tories plus Lib Dems. You know, I always thought that was a, that was a, good, that was a good offer. Well, we're out of time, Jeff. It's a half-hour show. We've, we're, we've nearly reached it. Very interesting talking to you as ever. Uh, please, folks at home, get yourself online and book yourself a ticket for I Blame the Parents. Uh, Jeff's tour. Get yourself a copy of his book as well. Um, yeah, we've come to Tories. Uh, where it all went right. Is that? Where where did I go right? Where did I? Where did I? I, I don't know. It's something where about right wing right? stuff. And and yeah, the tour's going to like Ipswich, uh, South End, Wimbledon Theatre. You see all, all these fancy comics. They all want to play the Apollo, but I think real people know that Wimbledon Theatre is the home of comedy, where I first saw Christopher Biggins dressed as a woman, <laughs> and I'm going to get back on that stage. I might even I might even do it in drag, just as a uh, coming as, as a sort of widow twanky figure. <laughs> nice, and I'll, I'll come down and see you in Worthing. I think that's the nearest one to me. Um, yeah. Thanks so much, Jeff. Thank you very much at home for watching. See you in again in a couple of weeks. We will have another guest on. I don't know who it is, nor do you. It would be very exciting to find out. If you appreciate our work, you can give us some money at the IEA. If you want to do it the old-fashioned way, just go on iea.org.uk slash donate. Get your credit card out. If you'd like to support our digital work like this in particular, then it's patreon.com slash IEA London. Uh, so thank you if you've done that in the past and uh, we'll see you or I'll see you at least in a couple of weeks. I won't even see you then, but you'll see me in a couple of weeks. Take care.